Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son... Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we, are also, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Father, thank you so much for preserving your word. Thank you for granting us ears to hear and eyes to see. And We pray your spirit would do that work in us still yet again for your children that they would marvel over the great riches we have of being justified in Christ, and for the person who has yet to experience this new birth, this imputed righteousness, this correct and and right standing with God. May today be the day that they see their sin, that they see their separation, and that they see the bleeding Savior for them, and that you would grant them repentance, you would grant them faith, and they would leave not as they came. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we enter a new section of Romans. Uh, We enter the section beginning in Romans 5, 1, and it will carry all the way through Romans chapter 8, verse 39. It's clear there's a transition, that something is occurring. In verse 1, we see the word, therefore. And as you see these chapters that unfold, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, they should be viewed as one unit, They should be viewed as a togetherness about them. And if you were in the ABF hour and you heard Sinclair Ferguson teach you on the union of Christ, uh, he gave us an introduction that this is to be viewed as one unit. And when you look at chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, you will see the centrality of the Lord Jesus. It's the centrality of the Lord Jesus that was not explicitly stated in the first four chapters leading up to verse 1. And, if, uh, and I'll just read these for the sake of time. But the end of every chapter of this one unit, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, they all end with the emphasis on the Lord Jesus, either through Christ or in Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 21 So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 7, 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And finally, Romans chapter 8 and verse 39. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So clearly then, Christ becomes the dominant, uh, the dominant person of the Trinity in these sections. In these verses, and in, cha- in, in these chapters, in chapter 5, we see that through Christ, there's freedom from wrath. In chapter 6, there's freedom from sin. In chapter 7, there's freedom from law. And in chapters 8, there's freedom from death. And though we find, and though we find uh, the Lord uh, Jesus, now the dominant member of the Trinity in this section, it's important for us to note that that does not divorce the Father and the Spirit in the working of justification by faith that leads to the Christian life. Everything about the Christian life is Trinitarian. Everything that we talk about in the Christian life must include the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit. 
and the Father and the Spirit are active in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. Though clearly the emphasis is on the Lord Jesus and the resulting mediation that he gives us uh, as outlined in justification by faith in chapters 3 and chapter 4. And so as we look at Romans chapter 5 verse 1, it drives us back to Romans chapter 3 verse 1 all the way through the end of chapter 4. I'm giving you a lot of numbers here, but, I, I, but it's important that we distinguish what's happening in Romans is that he has come uh, in chapter 3, verse 21 through 25 of chapter 4. Paul has brought us to justification by faith. He's brought us to coming under grace, so to speak. But now in chapter 5, all the way through chapter 8, in verse 39, he gives us now living under grace. So basically what we are seeing is we are seeing the act of justification now giving way to the fruits of justification. So we are clearly seeing the application of doctrine now fleshed out in the day-to-day life of the Christian. And justification, if rightly understood and rightly experienced, then clearly there will be a fruitful life as a result. Is that you will see the evidences of such. And as we look at these sections... Uh, we can look back and say that our position was declared before God. Justification by faith, verse 21 of chapter 3 through 425. And now we're going to look at our position lived before God. And I would argue that chapter 6 of Romans is one of the most important chapters in in living the Christian life. Because it fleshes out what union in Christ means. And how that allows us to live with not having sin dominating over us or domineering over us. And so as we look at verses 5, 1 through 11, 1 through 11, this is the transition. And this is the transition. And we're going to spend two weeks in this section. Today, the verse, uh, first five verses, and then, Lord willing, 6 through 11 next week. And so I've labeled this the believer's assurance. The believer's assurance. And if you look through this entire section you will find that that really is the theme. In chapter uh, 5, we have the believer's assurance in the first 5 or first 11 verses. And then on the very end of Roman chapter 8, 18 through 39, is another emphasis on assurance. So basically, we got these bookends of assurance for the believer. And if you're a Christian today and you understand that you have been justified by faith in Christ alone then these are your assurances. These are the things that God has provided for us by virtue of being justified. Not by religion, which no one can be. We saw that in Abraham. Nor by ritual. We saw that in in Abraham as well, by circumcision. Nor by works. So there's not a single thing that a human being can do to get right with God. It's all of God from start to finish. And as a result of us embracing Christ... In his propitiation and the atonement, we are now so radically changed is that this becomes ours. Five, six, seven, and eight of Romans. And what I want us to look at in verses one through five is the assurances that are given to a justified person. And so if that's you today, if you're a Christian and you've come to Christ empty, poor in spirit, mourning, Knowing that apart from the gospel you have no hope, these assurances are for you. These assurances are for every true Christian. And this is what anchors the Christian life. This is what places us in a position to enjoy the Christian life and to persevere through the hardships of the Christian life. It is justification by faith that that lays the foundation of being in Christ. And then 5, 6, 7, and 8 are the assurances and the practical outlaying of that justification by faith and position. And so let's take a look at these. Beginning in uh, verse 1. Here's the first assurance that you and I have as justified people. And the first is, is the height the height of justification by faith. And that is in verse 1, and that is peace with God. Peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, the simplest definition of peace is just this. It's harmony. It's harmony and freedom from disputes. And that primarily in relationships, especially in time of war. If you rightly understand what we are in Adam, if we rightly understand what we are by birth, dead in our trespasses and sins, we're not just sinners. We are enemies of God. We are his enemies. He views us as arch enemies. Is that we have nothing uh, of value to give him. In fact, we are in hostility against God. Look back in your own life as a Christian. You had no desire for God. If God didn't come to you and woo you by his spirit to the gospel of Jesus Christ and you experienced new birth, you would not have come to him. You don't just wake up one morning and say, I'm just going to take on Christianity. You don't just wake up and say, you know, the world's pretty messed up. I need a safety valve. I need to run to Christ. No, salvation from beginning to end is all of God, and no one seeks after God. Paul told us that in chapter 3, and that there is no peace with God. You can't make peace with God. You can't do enough good works to have peace with God. You can't be religious enough to have peace with God. You are at enmity against God. I am at enmity against God. There is no peace between me and God. And so how does that breach how do, we, how do we repair that breach? Well, Paul would say, therefore, in verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith and the resultant work of justification, which is God's declaration of righteousness because of Christ, we now have peace with God. Now, I want, I want us to help us understand that there are two aspects of God's peace in the Christian experience. And more often than not, we look at peace by way of its its experience. I just feel at peace. I I just feel at peace with this. I'm at peace with my wife. That's a relational peace that is experiential. That's not where it begins. It's Paul's declaration in verse 1 is objective peace with God. This is the peace that God says, you are no longer my enemy. That you and I are now reconciled in the relationship. That does not guarantee, or I should say, it does not produce in and of itself the peace of God that you experience. Because you can be justified and have the objective peace of God. You can be right with God from Him looking down upon you and right in the relationship. But because you're not right in human relationships, you won't have the peace of God. Is that you can have a right standing with God, but yet not have a right fellowship with God. And so the first thing that he would say is that we have this objective peace with God. God has looked at me. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you've abandoned yourself to him. Then God looks at you and says, Jim, Christian, you are no longer my enemy. You are now in my family. There is no hostility any longer. And that will never change. That will never be altered in your experience. Once you are justified forever in his family, you are forever in his family. Now, there may be tension in the family relationship. But it doesn't change the family relationship. In Romans 5.10, that's next week. But we'll look at it briefly here. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Reconciliation with God, the peace of God objectively, is not an ongoing experience that you got to have happen year in or day in out. You don't get saved a bazillion times. You don't ask Jesus into your heart, which is, you got to be careful of that anyway, but you don't get Jesus into your life and say, well, i got to ask him again because I'm not sure. You don't go through this roller roller coaster of a lack of assurance. And too many Christians live on this spiritual roller coaster is because they gauge their relationship with God on the subjective peace and not the objective peace. And if you don't live your Christian life out of what God declares is of us in the relationship, you are going to be a mess as a Christian. 
You are going to be up one day, down the next. You are going to find yourself having the joy of the Lord, which is probably more emotional than it is spiritual. And then you're going to find yourself down in the dumps. Woe is me the next. That's because Christians have failed to understand that when God justifies a person, verse 1 of chapter 5, you receive the objective peace of God. God is no longer your enemy. And God will never become your enemy again. That never happens. There is no turning back. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11, we read, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The implication there, there's no relationship. And strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's our definition of our identity outside of being justified. And friends, you can't do anything about that. You can't fix your relationship with God. You can't try harder. You can't say, well, I'll become more religious. I'll go serve the poor. No, there's a declaration that God makes because and exclusively because of your faith in Christ. And Paul would go on in verse 13 of Ephesians 2 and say, But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. It's not he himself plus Jim's religious work. It's not he himself and Jim being a pastor. It's not he himself and you trying to do better. It's Christ alone who establishes this objective peace. And Paul would go on to say he's, he has made both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Friends, your peace with God is contingent upon God making peace with God. I want you to think about that for a minute. God makes peace with us by making peace with himself through his son. And do you know what God is saving us from? He's saving us from himself. He's saving us from his wrath, his holy wrath. And how does he do that? By making peace. Objective peace. So when you don't feel like a Christian, and there, if, if, if you're a new Christian, and you say, well, I'll never not feel like a Christian, well, just wait. You'll have those periods of doubt. You'll have those fiery darts. The only way you quench them is not saying, Lord, let me feel your presence. The way that you quench those doubts is running back to Romans 5 and saying, I'm justified by faith. I have peace with God, not because I feel the peace of God, because God says I have peace with Him. And as a result, then we, we walk as justified people. But that, 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 does, that does provide us the foundation for the second peace. But I want to encourage you by uh, a quote from Ian Hamilton in his little book. It's a wonderful little book. It's called The Face-Shaped Life. He really does a good job of letting us understand what this justification and objective peace means to the Christian. Hamilton wrote this, quote, It is a once and for all eternally settled fact. God is at peace with us and we are at peace with him. No longer does he count our sins against us. He has counted them all against Christ. No longer are we under God's wrath. Christ exhausted his wrath against us by his sin-bearing death on the cross. No longer do we face the nightmare prospect of being forever banished from God's presence in hell. Christ took our banishment upon himself and went into the far country that we might never be separated from God. This is what it means to be justified. To be by faith alone in the saving work of Christ alone. Eternally and irreversible right with God. End quote. But there is, a separate, there is a different aspect of peace. And this is a peace that you likely have memorized. It's the peace that we find in Philippians 4, verse 4 through 7. And if you want to join me there, you may. 
I'm going to read it and probably pretty fast. And the time you get there, we've already moved on. So. There's an objective peace. You must always live your Christian life from the objective peace of God. That doesn't change. But there is, and thank God for this, there is the subjective peace of God. That's the, the emotion or the feeling of peace. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's not Romans 5.1. That is the experiential peace. That comes from rejoicing in the Lord. It comes by realizing He's near. It comes by fighting off anxiety through prayer with thanksgiving. And Paul says, if all those are in, in, in play, then God is going to calm your heart. And he's going to give you your peace, his peace. The peace that is experiential. The peace of when you feel like you're drowning in the circumstances of life, that the Lord Jesus floods your soul with the peace that calms down all those things. But if you try to live there, without living the theology of objective peace, you're not going to have that. Seek peace and you'll never have it. Seek Christ and the justification of His work and you'll have peace. It never begins with, give me peace. It always begins with, give me Christ. Give me more of Him. There was a following conversation between two men. One said this, quote, I'm glad to tell you that I've got peace with God at last. I've taken Jesus Christ as my Savior. That would be the first peace. I'm glad to hear that, said the other, but I've got something better than that. Better than peace with God, asked the first. He said, yes, for I have not only peace with God, but I have the peace of God. I see, said the first. That does sound better. Wait a minute. I have something even better still. What do you mean, said the second. I have both. I have the peace. I have the peace with God because of the atonement of Christ applied to me. And I have the peace of God that quiets my heart through all the trials and the tribulations of life. But friends, if I say anything of value to encourage you today, stop trying to look for peace. Stop trying to ask God to calm you down in this. There's nothing wrong with that prayer, but it's out of order. It's out of order. If that's the case, and all you go for God, to God is to get something from Him, you have a very shallow relationship. We're going to look at that tonight in Psalm 130. We're going to see how the psalmist is hungering for God. And that's where the, <clears throat> excuse me, the mark of maturity in the Christian is not what God is doing or what you're asking him to do, but give me God. Give me him. Because when you get him, you know what you get? You get, it there, you get everything else. And so I would even be as bold to say, in my own personal experience, and forgive me for that, is so many times, in times of turmoil and upheaval, I have begged God, give me your peace, give me your peace, give me your peace. And it, 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 it's almost like he says, you need to focus more on who I am and not what I do. If you focus more on who I am and then all the things that you're asking me, I will certainly, it, it's a package deal, so to speak. As you get Christ, as Paul would say, all spiritual blessings are in Christ. Let's move on verse 2. Here's the second assurance that the justified person has. has. We have peace with God. It's objective, it's theological first, and it is uh, experiential second. I've said this numerous times, but make sure that you get this. If your theology is only informing your head, then your theology is not doing the work. If your theology is only making you smart, and it's not changing your heart and causing a deeper affection for Christ, you need to rethink your theology. It may be right doctrine, it may be right, and you may be able to expound it, and you may be able to proclaim it to the world, but if your theology is not inflaming your heart and changing you and making you more humble and more like Christ, then your theology is not doing the work. Here's the second one. Look at verse 2. The second blessing or assurance that a Christian has because of justification by faith, it's access to God. 
And Paul would say, through him, through the mediation of Christ, which points back to justification, we have also obtained access by faith. Here is the highest summit of Christian experience. It is access to God. And I want you to think about that for a minute. You, if you're a Christian, you have been given the greatest privilege known to human beings. And that is you have access to God. Access, access in its, in its uh, definition, it means to be granted the opportunity and the privilege to approach a superior with full acceptance and welcome. That, that, that's, why, that's why I think we need to get a hold of what prayer means. Prayer is not treating God, and I don't say this with levity, prayer is not treating God like a cosmic genie. We don't just list out our things we want him to do, and we have these tags, Father, genie-like, in Jesus' name. That's not prayer. Prayer is primarily relational. It's primary the prayers of the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus. It's the prayers that cause us to want to understand and know this God to where we come. Oh, Father, grant to me that in the, in the deepest recesses of my being that I might know you and the power of your resurrection, that I might know the love of Christ. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, through Christ we have access in one spirit to the Father. Look at John chapter 14 for a moment. John chapter 14. Christian, don't take for granted, and I am guilty of this too often, don't for, take for granted what God has given to you. Because you're a justified person, you have peace with Him, and you have the peace of Him, but you also have access to Him. And let me challenge you, and maybe it's uncomfortable for some of you. Have you recently gone to your prayer closet just to be with God and you were sad when you had to leave? Have you, have, have, you, have you sought the presence of the living God in prayer and you were enamored because he revealed himself to you with the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of the Lord Jesus? And as a result of that and demands of life and responsibilities, your prayer time had to end and you felt bad that you had to stop praying? John chapter 14, verse 21. Paul was telling us in verse, uh, verse 2 that we have this access. We have this, this privilege to be with God, to, to know God, to enjoy God. John chapter 14, verse 21. This is the upper room discourse. Our Lord Jesus has just given us a wonderful promise here to his disciples and us. And I pray that God will open our eyes, beginning with me, to see to see just what this staggering access means. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now we're quick to say that. We're quick to exhort in our lives as preachers and teachers and parents and spouses. We're, we, we're quickly to say, if you want to show love for God, obey him. And that's true. It's true. Make sure when you sing, I love you, Lord, that you have a life that's backed up by obedience. But look what Jesus says after this. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Manifest myself to him. The word manifest means to reveal, to make known. Let's continue. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him. Here's a re-emphasis of this. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Make our abode with him. Do you know what the Lord Jesus is doing in these verses? He's inviting his disciples, and he's inviting us to have fellowship with him to commune with him. In John Owen's book, Communion with the Triune God, Kelly Capick and Justin Taylor have edited that work wonderfully. And they said this, quote, Communion with the Triune God is sweeter yet more profound than human friendship or any human relationship, end quote. There was a man in Scotland. His name was William Hewitson. Hewitson was known for a preacher, but he was known for how close he was to God. And as you read uh, Hewitson's memoirs, 
He was also a missionary, and he suffered tremendously for the cause of Christ. Hewitson said one, one time, and because he was marked for his humility, he was marked for his holiness, he had a reputation of being close to God, and I pray that we all have that reputation. Hewitson said this one time. He says, I am as close to the Lord Jesus than any human being in my life. That's not a boastful statement. That is a very manifestation of John 14, 21 through 23. Oh, may God do that for us. Because what has God done for us? Because of justification by faith, Paul would unfold the second assurance in chapter 5, and he says, you have access to this God. We have access to this God. I, I pray it transforms our prayer lives is that we can't wait to go to prayer because we are invited into the throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who bears before us the marks of the atonement so that we can know Him. And what's going to be eternity? What are we going to do in eternity? It's not going to be just one endless church church service. I hope not. (laughs) We're not going to just be up there and just uh, having a church service and going through an order of service. Read Revelation 4 and 5. I encourage you to do that. And pay attention to what the focus in heaven is. Two things. Actually three. The throne, the lamb, and God who is on the throne. Circle in your Bible in Revelation 4 and 5 how many times the word lamb and the word throne appears. They're short verses. And you will find that every single person in that revelation scene of worship, which is happening as we speak, every single person is fixed on the lamb is fixed on the throne. There's no looking around at other people. There's none of that stuff. There's this fixation. And they sing the song of redemption, which is what Romans 5 is. It is the rejoicing in what redemption has done. It has justified us. Not only has it given us peace with God and the peace of God, but it's invited us to have access to this God who so loved the world that he gave his son. Let's go back to verse 2. Here's the third assurance that's granted to the justified person. It's not only peace peace of God, access to God, but grace, grace to stand. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This grace and linking it in which we stand, it points to the imputed righteousness. The context is justification carried over and the application of that. And when you see the, the, the word stand, if you're a Bible student and, you're, and, and you've read your Bible, you're immediately drawn to Ephesians chapter 6 and the Christian posture in the Christian life. What is the Christian posture? It's not aggressively to go and attack the devil. If you're wrapped up in teaching that says you've got to go territorially and start going after the devil, run as far away from the teaching as you can. You're not, that's, we're never supposed to be on the offensive against the devil. In fact, we are to take a defensive posture. It's a defensive posture of standing. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he goes on, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand In the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, he would continue. Paul would be just over the top emphasizing that spiritual warfare is fought in a defensive posture of standing against the forces. And so Paul would say, how do you stand? You stand in the grace of justification. And in order to defeat the devil the wiles of the devil, and you're condemning conscience, do you know what you need to stand in? The very fruit of justification by faith, and that is the breastplate of righteousness. Paul would say, put on the breastplate, uh, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, stand therefore. Why? Let me ask you a question. When you sin, which you will, you have already, and you're going to, 
and the devil floods your soul with accusations, and your conscience comes alongside and says, I'll be your partner, devil, and brings condemnation upon you. How do you defeat that? How do you defeat when the devil says, look at you, Jim, what a sinner. Well, the first thing I should do is look at him and say, you're right. But like Spurgeon, I should tell him that you don't know the half of it. Here's the point I want to make about this. Paul would say that because we're justified, we not only have peace of God, peace with God and peace of God. We not only have access to God, but we have the grace where we can stand because of the righteousness of Christ given to us so that we can put aside the attacks of the devil and of conscience. In Zechariah chapter 3, here's a, another place I want you to turn to. Turn to Zechariah chapter 3. So what acquits, what acquits us in the courtroom of conscience and condemnation? What puts us, when we are put into the courtroom of God's absolute standard of righteousness, what acquits us when the devil is the prosecuting attorney and he wants to attack us and conscience comes alongside as the assistant prosecuting attorney and wants to say, what's our, how do we get acquitted in that courtroom? It certainly can't be by works. We've already established that. We can't, it can't be by ritual. We've established that. It can't be anything on my part. How do we, what do we do? Hence we stand in the righteousness not earned by us, but freely given to us. The breastplate of righteousness. Because what does the breastplate cover? It covers the very places that you are attacked by the devil in conscience, and that is your heart. Look at Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Well, we know in Revelation 12, 10, this is what the devil does night and day. He accuses the brethren. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. It doesn't say Christian rebuke him. And there are Christians out there that think that they have the authority to rebuke the devil. They do not. Any authority given to us, it is, it is an a authority that is given to us, but not in the context of to go aggressively attack in spiritual areas that we have no business going into. But look what happens. So the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Well, wait a minute. He's the high priest. Really? Filthy garments? Remember, everything that we do in God's eyes, apart from Jesus Christ, are filthy garments. They're filthy rags. And so here he is, he's standing there, and the devil is there to accuse him. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That is a powerful illustration of justification by faith. It is an Old Testament illustration of how God takes the filthy rags of our righteousness and clothes us with the righteousness of Christ so that when the devil accuses us, is that it is the Lord himself, the Lord our righteousness, that acquits us in the courtrooms of conscience and of the devil. And so we stand in this grace. Do you see how practical justification by faith is? Do we see this isn't just something I believe to get me to heaven? Paul is unfolding these riches in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5 of Romans, showing us the assurances we have because God has done this amazing work of justifying us. He's saying, you have, you have peace with me. You now have access to me. You have this marvelous grace, this marvelous grace by which you can fight off the, the, the enemy of your souls so that you can protect yourself because of my righteousness. See, all this is, is just a treasure chest of justification unfolded. Well, let's go back to Romans chapter 5. Here is the fourth one. Here's a fourth assurance given to the justified believer. And Paul would say in verse 2, and we rejoice. We not only stand in the warfare of this world, but we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We may label this our glorious future. Our glorious future. What is this glory of God that Paul was referring to here? It's beyond comprehension, but it does link us to the prayer of Jesus in John 17. We know our hope is a certain hope 
that looks beyond the now to the not yet. But when I, if I was to ask you, if we were having lunch today and I was to ask you, what, is the most, what, is, what thrills you most about being in heaven? What is, this, what is this hope that you have for heaven? It's not just about forgiveness. It's not just about escaping from this world. Jesus in John chapter 17 would say this in his prayer. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And notice what Jesus prays for out of the depths of his being. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, those whom you have justified in me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. If you were to ask me, and it's something I want to know more of, what is my hope of heaven? I want to see the glorious beauty of the face of Jesus Christ. And I want to see that because the Bible says that when I see him, I will be like him. And that there will be this conformity to him. I won't sin anymore. I won't have a bad attitude anymore. I won't be critical anymore. I won't be selfish anymore. I won't be hurtful anymore. I won't be practicing hypocrisy anymore. I won't fail in my worship anymore. I won't fail in my love the Lord like he deserves anymore. I won't fail you anymore. Is it when we see Jesus, and this is the culmination of redemption, and this is what the New Testament shows us, the glorious future is not just the place of glory, it is the person of glory. Yes, we look forward to that imperishable, undefiled, unfading place in heaven for us, but friends, if you're all about heaven and the place, you're missing it. Heaven isn't about the place. I think it was Bunyan who, who said this. And if I'm not correct, ask the resident Bunyan uh, expert, uh, Gene Messier. He'll, he'll correct me. But Bunyan said, where Christ is, that's heaven to me. And so when you think about this future glory, when Paul says rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, do you know where God is, how God is most glorified? When we are most reflecting his glory in the person of his son. It's the more that we are conforming into the image of Jesus, the more that we reflect back the very purpose why we were created and why we're saved is that for God to take pleasure and to see glory because we reflect back to Him the glory of, our, of Himself. You see how it so short changes our understanding of justification if, if all we think about is forgiveness? If all we think about even is peace with God? Justification has opened the, the floodgate to have access to God. Justification has opened to us the most effective tool of spiritual warfare, and that is a righteousness to silence the devil in conscience. And justification has opened up the door into heaven, which is only a door into the place to we will behold the person. Finally, look at verse 3 and 5. Here's the fifth assurance that comes from being a justified person. And, and, and get a hold of this, the staggering truth of this. This is all of free grace. This is all of free grace. And if you leave here today and you think you've got to try harder to get this, then you missed everything that I said. Is that you can't earn this. You can't do anything to get this. All you can do is fall on your face and receive this. And as a result, this is what comes with that. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. As many as believed upon him, to them he gave the power to become children of God. Received him. And when you receive that, do you know what you get? You get this treasure chest. And today you can open it up and find the peace of God. Access to God. Grace to stand because of God. A glorious future seeing him. And then finally, verses 3 through 5, one of the great assurances of the Christian who is justified, is the ability to rejoice in suffering. 
Look at verse 3. Not only that, as if that's not enough. Paul said, not only all of that you have, justified person, but get this, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Only the Christian has the proper perspective on suffering. The world does not. The world doesn't, doesn't make sense of suffering. Granted, there's a times that we struggle with it too. But if we, get, if we set back and pull away the, the emotion of our suffering, we can see that suffering is a primary tool that God uses to make us like Jesus to reflect his glory. I find that that's, uh, that's a real challenge in my life. I don't like to suffer. And if you do like to suffer, would you please help me? Because I don't like to suffer. I want to make a difference in my, whatever life I have left here. I want to make a difference in our church, in our community, for the Lord Jesus. I want to become more and more like Jesus. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father, a better grandfather, a better friend, a better pastor. Uh, And I want to do all that without one single ounce of suffering. And that's not going to happen. Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. And why? How, how can he say this? How can he say that we rejoice in these things? The world looks at us like we have three heads when we say we rejoice in suffering. Because the world will do everything they possibly can to get free of suffering. And sadly, many Christians run from it too. And the evidence that Christians run from it is they complain. They complain. They complain in suffering. And I'm not pointing the finger at you. Well, maybe I am because I'm pointing at myself too. I knew far too many Christians that, you know, that they, they think they're okay spiritually until a little suffering or a little hurt comes in there. Then you can really see what they are because they'll start to complain. Well, what does Paul say? Not only do we rejoice in our sufferings, but note the next word in verse 3, knowing. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. If we are going to be able to do this as justified people, rejoice in our sufferings, then we need to understand two things about suffering. And then there's going to be the cement that brings that together. It's two things about suffering. You and I must be convinced that suffering is a primary means to mature us in Christ. We won't read the text, but in Hebrews chapter 12, 5 through 11, it's the chastisement chapter that the Lord uh, disciplines his children who he loves. The writer would say, for the moment, all suffering or all discipline seems painful. Absolutely. He says, but... It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. When you're in suffering, number one, start to rejoice, even if you don't feel like it. That's not hypocrisy. That's obedience. Is to start thanking God for suffering. And even say, Lord, I don't feel like thanking you for suffering, but I thank you for suffering. That's like objective peace leading to subjective peace. The more that you learn to rejoice in your suffering when you don't feel like it, you're going to find yourself... Obeying more, Romans chapter 5, 3 through 5. But you must understand something. If we're going to rejoice in our suffering, we need to see that this is what God uses to mature us in Christ. And who doesn't want to be mature like Christ? As a Christian, it's part of the new birth. You want to be like Jesus. You just got to be willing to accept how God's going to do that. And here's a second, a second way that we can, the fruit of justification and rejoice in our sufferings, is we must see that our suffering identifies us with Christ. Our suffering identifies us with Christ. Acts chapter 5, verse 40, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. I'm not convinced that probably a lot of Christians that would have probably said, well, that's enough for me. Maybe even this Christian. Uh, I'll, go, I'll go out and pass out some tracts or, you know, I'll, I'll invite someone to church. But getting beat, getting beat and told not to say another word, said, well, I'm just going to have a ministry of prayer. What did the disciples do? 
and the early church. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They could not do that without justification by faith. They could not do that without the Spirit of God because by nature we rebel against suffering. We don't rejoice in suffering. But if we're going to see this and to be able to Enjoy the assurance of rejoicing in suffering. We must cut through the fog of our emotions and see that suffering matures us in Christ. And secondly, that suffering identifies us with Jesus. Paul says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection that I may share in his sufferings. And here's the cement that brings all that together. It's in verse 5 of Romans chapter 5. And we'll conclude with that. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The only way that we can practice the justified life and enjoy these assurances, peace with God, access to God, the grace to stand, rejoice in seeing Christ, and to suffer well, is that we must be convinced that we are loved with a love that's indescribable. And we got to rejoice that God has placed His love already into our hearts and that through the love of the Spirit of God in us, we are empowered to live the justified life. The justified life that declares we're at peace with God, that leads to the peace of God, that leads to access to God, that enables us to stand in the warfare that we're called to, And thus causes us to look beyond the now to the day that we will see him who suffered the most for us. And then, and only then, will we be able to rejoice in suffering. May God help us to see that as justified people, these are our assurances. And that God may indeed help us to do these things for his glory. Father, thank you so much for these great truths of being justified and all the riches Forgive us when we live like paupers when you've given us so much. May we learn to open up the treasure chest of justification by faith and apply these as your spirit showers us with the empowering love of him that we might cherish access and we might look forward to Jesus, that we might suffer well and that we might know more and more both the objective and the subject of peace that causes us to endure all things for his sake. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.